It's great to see you all. And I am very impressed at uh, your ability to, to turn the clock. And I think we will see a few people turning up in about half, well, 20 minutes or so. But let's be gracious to them and not mock them. Um, next weekend will be a great weekend to invite people to church. We're going to have baptisms, going to hear about the hope of the resurrection. Uh, so um, what do you pray about, think about inviting somebody to that? Uh, this evening, we're going to be um, hearing some of the different ways that the gospel is uh, being spread and uh, an opportunity to pray about various aspects that are going on in the city. So I'd encourage you to come. Uh, we're also going to be uh, looking at Hebrews chapter 12. And so please come this evening and to hear about what God is doing. Be edified, encouraged, and let's pray as God's people together. Let's pray now, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for the fact that you've clearly revealed yourself to us. And so we ask, as we read these words, um, ancient words, that you would take them up by your Holy Spirit, that we may see that you are the same living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we may hear your voice speaking to us, that you would strengthen us, encourage us, shape us as your people. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, I'm not a a big fan of um, boxing, but I do like like the big sporting events. And nothing quite beats the hype of a big boxing match. Um, Last year, we saw the incredible contest dubbed as David versus Goliath. Uh, David the haymaker, hey, that that little guy on the right-hand side is six foot three. And uh, he, he took on the reigning WA uh, heavyweight champion, Nikolai Valuev, a man who was nearly a foot taller and seven stone heavier. Look at them. Look at them. And before the boxing match, David used every opportunity to trash talk Nikolai. Quote, he is the ugliest thing I have ever seen. <laughs> I have watched Lord of the Rings and films with strange looking people, but for a human being to look like that does, is pretty shocking. Now, why would you say such things when you're about to go into a ring with this man? Why, why do you want to make him angry? I'd want to say he's a lovely guy, you know, you know, a handsome man. But no, he went at it. Well, amazingly, David outboxed him 12 rounds to win on points to become the WBA champion, even though he broke his hand in the process. Well, let's move on away from that picture there, shall we? These, these chapters today in Exodus have this kind of feel to me of a, of a, of a, of a build-up to a big contest. Uh, there are two principal opponents, Pharaoh and God. The fight starts in chapter 7, and there are 10 rounds. We call them plagues, but the original text uh, uses a word that can mean strike. God will strike Egypt Ten big blows. But before we get to those in about four weeks' time, we're going to be looking at the pre-match press conferences. Chapter 5 has already been read to us, and that was Pharaoh's press conference with the repercussions. And in chapter 6, we turn to see what God has to say. So please open your Bibles back to page 62. I'm going to read uh, chapter 6 through to chapter 7, verse 7. You'll find that on page 62 in the church Bibles. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanach and Palu, Hezron and Carmi, these were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi, according to their records, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon by clans were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mali and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi according to their records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. The sons of Isaac were Korah and Nepheg and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzaphan and Zithri. Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abisaph. These were the Korahite clans. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite clan families, clan by clan. It was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, 
bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I, commanded you, I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is God's word. Two press conferences. The first one, Pharaoh, in chapter 5. To everyone around Pharaoh, this was to be a very one-sided competition. A walkover, with very little doubt of the outcome. Egypt was at that time the dominant superpower, economically prosperous and militarily superior to its foes. And then one day, two old men from the Hebrew slave class shuffle in, into Pharaoh's mighty throne room with an audacious demand. In chapter 5, verse 1, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the, de- in, in the desert. What's Pharaoh's response? Well, it's complete derision. Verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Your God commands me, Pharaoh says. Never heard of him. What a joke. The God of the slaves can't be that good if he lets this happen to his people. And Pharaoh throws down the gauntlet. And here's the response, really, that has been echoed by many governments and leaders that have been against God. Here's the response of atheistic and secular philosophers. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? It is the enmity, actually, of of the human heart against the living God. And behind all such defiant cries of, of, of nation states, of philosophies, of false religion, of human pride, is the work of Satan himself. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, when the Apostle Paul uh, describes Satan in this way. It says this, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And there's Moses. He's, uh, 
He's full of the wonder of having met God and he can hardly believe his ears. Pharaoh just doesn't seem to uh, get it. So he tries again in verse 3. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. Things could get very bad around here if we don't listen because you're now dealing with our God, Moses says. Now, some people have suggested that this is a bit of a sneaky request, suggesting they'll be back after a three-day retreat. But actually, if you check back to chapter 4, verse 18, this is part of the script that God has given Moses. What is being said here is really that the destination is three days away. That's all that's being said. Well, Pharaoh's just having none of it. Get back to your burdens, Pharaoh says. Um, Interesting, in a week of uh, work disputes... Uh, techniques don't change very much. Get back to your work. Now, the previous pharaoh was nervous about this growing Hebrew community. Uh, the, the, the current pharaoh here was more happy to have the cheap slave labor propping up the economy of Egypt. A thriving economy was much more important to this king than obeying God's word or providing justice in his society. These people don't belong to God. They belong to me, Pharaoh is saying. Get back to serving me. And what's clear in these chapters is that those who are opposed to God will be those who are opposed to God's people. And what Pharaoh does here is to to sow division in the ranks in in verses 6 to 21. And these verses kind of remind us, I guess, of the brutality and the hardness of the human heart. Look at verse 6. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers to make things even harder. Pharaoh wanted to crush their spirits, to grind them into the sand, really, and to sow division among their ranks. Verse 8 and verse 17 offer the same charge. You're lazy. That's the problem. You're just lazy. What are you thinking of serving your God? You're just lazy. You need to work harder. And so uh, they need to collect your own straw. But we expect the same productivity. Um, We call this efficiency savings, I think, something like that. Um, And the clever result of this strategy is that the people become divided from one another, as it says in verse 12. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. And when the brick quota is not met, the Hebrew foremen are summoned in and all their protestations are just beaten out of them and they're dismissed out of hand. And the other charge here, as well as them being lazy, is the charge that they're gullible and foolish. Foolish for believing God's word. And those who proclaim it, look at verse 9. Make the word harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Now what's Pharaoh referring to as lies? He's referring to the word of God spoken by Moses. Oh, those are lies. How gullible to believe those. And so these Hebrew foremen, having been roughed up, they, they walk out from Pharaoh's court and they stumble across, guess who, Moses and Aaron, and they get it in the neck, verse 21. They said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You've made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The enemy of God's people will always work uh, to cause us to turn and attack one another. 
to kind of create pressure and circumstances that will stress us to the point where we just lose our perspective, that we, we lose the plot and we turn on each other. is a classic divide and conquer technique. And the irony, of course, is that Moses is not the reason for this oppression, but actually God's instrument to end that oppression. That's why God had sent him. And yet he's the very one that they pounce on. And so here, you know, we've got the very same people at the end of chapter 4 heard the good news of what God was going to do and they bowed their heads and they worshipped him at the end of chapter 4 and yet at the first signs of difficulty they respond with division and doubt. It's very human, isn't it? It's very real. And what about the great leader of God's people? What about Moses? How did he respond to all of this? Well, here's the honesty of God's word. He crumbles into doubt just like the people. Verse 22, Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Can you see where the blame shifting they call it, isn't it? Where the buck's being moved here. It looked and felt to Moses like another great failure moment in his life. First time, his first attempt at 40, remember, uh, left him fleeing to the wilderness. And now after a bold, confident start with Pharaoh, it had all gone wrong. And things had got even worse. And his faith was weak and he crumbled. Crushed by apparent failure, he collapses emotionally and basically says to God, Why did you ever send me? very human isn't it in the despair of the moment Moses completely forgot God's word so you turn back to chapter 3 verse 19 you see this is what God has said to him would happen in chapter 3 verse 19 but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders I'll perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God was pretty clear, wasn't he, with the order of events. None of this should have been unexpected. And yet, in his despair, he forgets God's words and accuses God. Now, there is a sort of a terrible heresy that is taught in some churches and on Christian TV stations, particularly emanating out of America. And that really is this, that as Christians we should be living the victorious life, and by that they mean uh, financial prosperity, health and ease. And living in the affluent West um, is a message that we want to believe. And so when adversity and disease and opposition comes, we can crumble into doubt. Oh Lord, why, why have you done evil to us? Since I've been following Jesus, uh, who I thought was my deliverer, actually things have become worse, not better. Well, listen to the encouragement of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas to the young churches that they had recently started. It's in Acts 14. It says this, that they returned to the churches, strengthening the disciples. They were strengthening them and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And this is how they did it. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships 
That's the expectation of the Christian life. That's the apostolic message. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And these hardships, I think, are likely to increase the more our ruling elites determine that God's word is a harmful lie. Opposition to the Christian life is to be expected. And being part of God's people doesn't make us immune from struggle or pain. I mean, God had made great and awesome promises to them, but we should note that there was a delay in their fulfillment. Things got worse before they got better. Difficulties and struggles does not mean that God is absent, but throughout the Bible, the call to the Christian is to patiently endure and to keep trusting those precious promises. And we're going to be thinking about that more this evening as we look at Hebrews 12. But how can we patiently endure? How can we persevere? Well, what we need is a renewed vision of the glory of God. And after the discouraging backdrop of Pharaoh's press conference, we need to come back to God's press conference in chapter 6. This is what Moses needs. He needs a renewed vision. 6 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Against that oppression and bleakness of Pharaoh's uh, opposition, the glory of God's deliverance is going to shine all the brighter. Here's another classic moment where with, with, with all human resources and hope completely impotent, God's people get reminded that our hope and our confidence should be in the God who always has the final words. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will deliver them out of this country. And as we work through these chapters of Exodus, uh, we should be awed, I think, and thrilled at the sovereignty of God to see that his will, his purposes are never thwarted by human or spiritual opposition. Just watch Moses, as if God says. And this despot who refuses to let Israel go will in the end, by the time I finish with him, will be, will be so desperate to get you out, he'll be pushing you out. That's what I'm going to do to him. In another classic boxing match, uh, the rumble in the jungle between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali in the 1970s. Foreman came in at the, uh, the top of his career. Ali was well past his sell-by date, past his prime. And yet Ali made this prediction that he would knock Foreman out in the eighth round. And after seven rounds of Ali being absolutely pummeled against the ropes, he hardly put up a defense. He was just slugged out against the ropes by Foreman. In the eighth round, Ali, Muhammad Ali blasted him with a punch that floored him, and he never got up. Well, until the camp was out anyway. He's now selling grills, which is great. <laughs> He's very happy about it. Well, if that's the rumble in the jungle, this is, this is the rumble that God promises would make Egypt humble. That's what's going on here. And notice with me just the supreme confidence of God as he approached this fight with Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. 
God is not shaken or surprised by the unfolding events. It's all been part of his plan. And the outcome, despite all the derision, despite all the apparent defeat, is never in doubt. God will have the final word in human history. We should be assured of that. Uh, As we live at a time where uh, the Bible and God is pushed to the edge of society and we're barely tolerated, well, you know, the truth is that societies have set themselves up against God need to be sobered that God will have the final words. Lives that displace God and make him sort of an end note or a footnote or barely a mention in, their, in the book of their lives. Well, God will have the final word. He is the creator. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the judge of all the earth. And God will not be mocked. God will have the final word. It is so foolish to set your life or set your society against the Lord, who is God. And what we're told in in verses 2 to 8 of chapter 6 is really uh, almost a repeat of what God told Moses earlier on Mount Horeb. But you see, what Moses needs to hear in his defeat and doubt is God's word once more. It's not that he just needs to hear the promises one more time. God has been clear what he's going to do. Moses is wavering. God in his grace doesn't rebuke Moses. But in his grace, he just says to him, Moses, let me tell you this one more time. Now, can you hear this? Do you know who I am? Let me try again. Listen carefully, Moses. Verse 2, I am the Lord. Now, is this not what we need in our despair, in our discouragement? We need to be reminded of God's word again. We need to be reminded of the character of the God who spoke that word. The same God that calls us to trust him in our discouragements, in our pain, in our struggles. Listen carefully. I am the Lord. See, Pharaoh, what was the question he asked? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And God's reply, I am the Lord. And the content and the meaning of God's name would be revealed in the unfolding events of the Exodus. Part of what's going on here is that God is revealing the sort of God that he is through these historical events. If Pharaoh says he doesn't know who God is, well, God's going to give him an education. Verse 3 to 4. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. God is the almighty God, the God who keeps his promises. That's what he's reminding Moses. He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give them a people and a land. And at times for Abraham, it looked like he would not even have one son. And yet God was faithful to his promises. And God 
is acting now in this moment of history because he's keeping his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the faithful God, the God who is faithful to all his promises. And verse 5, he is the God who feels our woes and our pain. He's the God who empathizes with us. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant. And then verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to, bring to, to give to Abraham, to Isaac, of Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. God is supremely confident of what will take place. It really is not in doubt. God will deliver his people. God will redeem his people with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. And, and the great event of redemption will be for this purpose of relationship. Here is a God who is personal, who wants to be known, who allows them to know him. They will become his people, and I will be your God. Here is a promise of intimacy and special relationship. And he will give them an inheritance, the promised land. Now, the reason we're studying this, this book of Exodus is because, really, this is, this is a pattern and a picture of a far greater redemption that God achieved through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, which is what we're going to be considering in this coming week. It is only truly at the cross that God redeems his people from their slavery to sin through the outstretched arms of Christ. The cross was the great day of God's judgment. It was the great day where he poured out his wrath for the obstinacy and sinfulness of our human hearts, and yet not directing it at us as we deserve, but upon his Son who stood in our place. And the purpose of this, of this redemption is relationship. God buys us back to himself at great personal cost so that we can be his people. And that we have the privilege of calling God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our God, our Heavenly Father. And God promises us an inheritance, eternal life that goes on from now into the new heavens and the new earth. And my friends, we, we just have to say that even at this point in history, how much more certain we can be of the fact that God will deliver on his promises. He delivered on his promises in the Exodus events here. He delivered on his promise of sending his son, the Messiah, who died and was raised. This is a faithful God who is unchanging in his power. And his purposes are undimmed. He, he is about this in the world. Romans 8 verse 32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Here is the confidence of the Christian in the loving, 
gracious, powerful, faithful character of God. So when we face hostility and opposition as Christians, when we face setbacks and disappointments, the way to persevere is to focus our gaze away from our problems to the promises of God, to focus our eyes off ourselves onto the great and awesome God that has called us into relationship with himself through his Son. See, what we need to freshly consider is the glory and the character of God, the God who is the Lord. This is not just nice thoughts, fables, myths. This God has acted in human history. This is the God that we trust. We care about history as Christians. The one who is sovereign will always have the final word and will have complete victory. And so Paul says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's a great word to apply to us if we're anxious right now, isn't it? Oppressed, hurting. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, with those certain promises and assurances from God, Moses is sent back to his people and to Pharaoh. It's as if he is recommissioned by God. Romans uh, 6 verse... uh, Romans. Exodus 6 verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of this country. Now, the more you study the Bible, the more real and uh, trustworthy it becomes because it doesn't present its characters in the greatest light, does it? Here's the great man of faith, Moses. He's just had this amazing further revelation of God. And this is what he says, verse 12. But Moses said to the Lord, Well, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why will Pharaoh listen to me? And I can't really speak very well anyway. He kind of he falls back on the same excuses, doesn't he? It's no good sending me, Lord. They don't really believe me, my people, let alone Pharaoh, and I can't talk very well. Look at 7 verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of this country. God will not really take no for an answer from Moses. God gives him his marching orders. Get on with it. Now, what's the significance of this genealogy in between? Do you notice that there's this, you've got 6 verse 12 and uh, 6 verse 30, exactly the same statement, really, of, of Moses and his faltering lips. And in between, you have this genealogy. What's the genealogy about? I think it is to point out the sort of people that God uses in his purposes. Just mere human beings people who feel inadequate people who can crumble into despair people who keep trying to make excuses why they're not the ones for the job do you hear the note of astonishment in the text in verse 26 it was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their division. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. 
this flaky guy who keeps bottling it, keeps being crushed, keeps saying, oh, it's not me, is it? You're not sending me, are you? It was this one the Lord sent. God, in his amazing purposes, delights to take up weak, feeble, frail people to speak his words, to declare his glory, so that God's glory is revealed even through the the poverty of the material used to uh, spread the message. People like us, feeble and frail, uses people like us to pronounce his word, his acts of salvation, to his acts of judgment. And the amazing thing is that Moses and Aaron finally got it. Verse 6 of chapter 7, 7 verse 6. And I think you can just note that in the text. Moses and Aaron, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Phew. Finally, they did just as the Lord commanded them. And Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron, 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Well, have we got it? Have we got it? Have we got it that, that this is the mighty, glorious, great God that is the God that we worship today? Have we got it? Have we seen how glorious he is? Have we seen how faithful he is to his promises? Have we seen that he really does care, that he empathizes, that he's a God who desires personal relationship? He's a God who promises a great inheritance, that he's going to get us there? Have we got it that he's sending people like us? Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to go as people who will declare his mighty acts of salvation and even his judgment. Have we got it? Are we willing to be those who will faithfully speak God's word to others? The Apostle Paul got it, and he said of himself and Timothy to the church in Corinth, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When we are faithful to this gospel that we find in his word, when we are faithful to declare it as it is, here's the incredible thing. We are as if, we are as if Christ is before that person. We are declaring the truth of God's word to that person. We are the mouth that God uses to declare his mighty acts of salvation, his mighty acts of judgment, his glorious character that we as feeble, frail people get to go and do this for him. My friends, if we're still quivering and quavering, because I think we all are, let's pray that we see the glory of the gospel in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. That that would captivate our hearts. That the glory of the God we're dealing with would, would, would grab hold of us so that we will do just as the Lord commanded. Let's pray.